Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for Monday, the 11th of April, and joining me on this edition are Assistant Editor Steve Withers. Now here's your part of the deal, cuz. Lay the secret of man's red fire. And News Editor Mark Hodgkinson. Now for the last time, go to sleep. Ah, nobody did the bare necessities. I was I was waiting. I was waiting for that musical cue and get in, start singing. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's been an interesting week. Two podcast recordings in one week. And also we had the first trailer for Rogue One, a Star Wars story. What a crap name. Why you not just call it Star Wars Rogue One? Yeah, that is a really rubbish title. I don't Isn't know why it? they're doing that. Yeah, but as far as the trailer's concerned, oh my god, oh, everything a fanboy wants. The film could be rubbish for all I care now because some of those shots, it's like, oh my god. Yeah. The the art, art walkers on the beach, the Death Star having its uh, laser that module fitted. Into it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that was a great shot because you saw the Star Destroyer being covered by shadows. And the Star Destroyer's white, it's not dirty, it's, it's really clean, so... It's kind of strange because you would think it would be all because George Lucas's universe was all banged up and dirty and rusty and all the rest of it. It's super clean and super white in that shot. Yeah, although I suppose you know the Empire has got more money than the than the Rebellion, so maybe that was a brand new Star Destroyer just off the production line. But it was good cool seeing um, there was a couple of nice little touches in it. Obviously, they're on Dantooine uh, by looks of it, which is the base at the end of Star Wars, and um, and you saw Genevieve O'Reilly who played Mon Mothma in uh, Episode Three. Avenger the Sith. She's playing playing her again in this. So there's a nice bit of continuity there with the prequels, um, and uh, yeah, I was well jazzed. I thought this is I'm quite excited now about this. It looked uh, it, it reminded me of a, a grittier live action version of Star Wars Rebels, which by the way is also worth watching if you haven't seen it because I think that's quite enjoyable too. So yep. and they're set in the same kind of time period. So so this is before Episode Four, the the original. Apparently, Star Wars. it takes place uh, five years after Star Wars Rebels and just before Episode Four. Right, so the tag, the the jokes that everybody are going around with at the minute, saying there was many Bothan spies died. That's um, wrong. That, that's wrong because <laughs> that's Return wrong. of the Jedi. Yep, <laughs> that's Death Star Two. <laughs> Just to be pedantic. <laughs> and we might well see a tall, black-clad, heavy-breathing individual in this film as well. Apparently, so. me. Yeah, well, I was I was looking for. Uh, I was looking and hoping that he was going to, because the Imperial Guards were there. I don't know if you noticed that. There's there's a shot with the red Imperial Guard. And there was somebody kneeling in front of something, but it wasn't Vader, I don't think. No, no, that wasn't Vader. That that there was. Um, well, it, it's it's almost as though you're right. I feel they were going through a fanboy wish list, weren't they? Just ticking off what they could stick in it. Like, oh, we want to see a bit of that. Want to see a bit of that. Um, but a Vader would be excellent. Um, the room is also of a CG recreated Peter Cushing you know, from Grand Moff Tarkin, but we'll see. And did you notice that the last shot on? I take it it's another strong female role in this film. Um, but did you notice her last shot? She was wearing a TIE fighter. Yeah, she's wearing an Imperial U TIE fighter uniform. Uniform, yeah. And then suddenly I thought Rogue One. So maybe she's the Rogue One. Maybe yeah. she goes rogue or something. But that was quite a cool shot. Yeah, suddenly it's, uh, I'm really excited again about, about the, the, only thing, the only thing that stood out for me was um, there was a, a, an Asian bloke there doing martial arts. Yeah. And that kind of stood out, thinking, "What? I, I don't get. I don't get the connection here. I don't know much of the canon between these bits, but I didn't get that. Couldn't fathom that bit at all. It was kind of like crouching, crouching uh, <laughs> tiger, hidden Jedi, hidden Jedi. Yeah, that was something. Yeah, I don't know whether I was just trying to pull in, pull in another bit of audience or not. I don't know. Yeah, that did seem incongruous. How many times have you watched this trailer, by the way, you guys? Um, yeah, probably a, a bit. 
Mm. Yeah, too much time with you guys. I've only seen it once, but it, it did completely hit the spot. Absolutely. I think I've watched it about 10 times now. Laura Sidney was getting quite annoyed with me yesterday when she kept hearing that clacks and the siren thing going <laughs> off halfway through the trailer. Do we stop watching that bloody trailer? Well, my wife watched the trailer and she said it was brilliant. She thought it was brilliant. She, she won't go and watch the movie, but she thought the trailer was excellent. So, no, yeah, really... they're doing a good job with these trailers. Yeah, I mean, obviously the trailers is good, but, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting time period that they've chosen, as it's not following a Solo or a Skywalker, like the prequels and the originals, and, and as it looks like the, the, the main films, episodes seven and eight, it could be good because we're following a different strand. It's Although it all ties in, we're following a different strand, different characters. There's nothing kind of tying them to any specific canon either so I mean they could really make a really good job of this or it could be a disaster but having seen how well Rebels and the other animated series have worked in terms of telling stories from different angles with different characters I'm positive I think this is going to be I think this could be really good I think it'll be better than The Force Awakens in terms of story because obviously well everyone said it but it followed too closely to um to the originals uh, or to the originals <laughs> yeah. so and, and from they, this, they've and got the opportunity to now to do something a lot more interesting I think so I am yeah, very but hopeful but with. somebody could also say well you're looking at the original Death Star the original Star Destroyers the original Stormtroopers yeah. um, you know there is that yeah, but there is that. and like any kind of prequely thing clearly we know what happens at the end because they do get the plans because <laughs> Leia's got them at the beginning of um, beginning of Star Wars so um, that's always a bit but if they can find a way of putting a twist on it that'll be good yeah. Uh, anyway, it looked, it looked, but it looked. I love the way that it it still looked like the original Star Wars in many respects, but obviously with a with a modern sheen to it and uh, and a slightly grittier feel. But uh, it it looked fantastic. And uh, you know, I've, Gareth Edwards. I think Monsters is a fantastic film. I think he did a brilliant job with that. I wasn't such a big fan of Godzilla, but he clearly has proved he can handle a big budget and a lot of effects. Um, the question is whether it's got a story to go with it. And it was uh, written by Chris Weiss, who, who originally wrote um, American Pie and also wrote About a Boy, and I think he did The Golden Compass. So um, he certainly can write. So, you know, it could be, if, if everything comes together, it could be fantastic. Another billion dollars in, um, at least, in, in Disney's bank account. And lots of new toys to sell. New yes. characters, yes. Yep, and I'm sure there'll be new droids and, and all sorts, new weapons and... Uh... Yeah, uh, from that from that trailer, um, I guess we could say they are pandering to the fanboys. There's no doubt about that. But uh, also interesting that it's another female lead. I mean, if they want to drag in a female audience, then you know, that's that's the thing to that do. That certainly appears to have worked for them on uh, Force Awakens. You know, um, I mean, it was always going to be successful, but it did. Star Wars did historically skew towards boys and men for obvious reasons, and I think um, with the Force Awakens, that that balance was much more fifty fifty. So they've. Um, their approach, whilst it might be considered slightly cynical, although I think is also a long overdue addressing of the balance, um, it certainly paid off so far. Obviously, the timing of the uh, of this trailer is to tie in with the fact that on Tuesday of this week that we were recording the podcast, uh, Star Wars: The Force Awakens came out on Blu-ray in the states, and it comes out in the UK a week on well a week on the day of the podcast going up, so the eighteenth of April. Just yep. for those who know, <laughs> already aware of that fact. I think the whole universe. No, you are. <laughs> knows, I think the whole universe knows that, Steve. Um, the only reason I didn't get the US version was that Amazon couldn't get to, get get it to me in time. I ordered it. I would be ordering too late to get. It would actually arrive the same day as the UK release. Yeah, so I may as well just get the UK. Mine's currently at Heathrow, so should be. Are you tracking it, Steve? Yeah, on an hourly basis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you're not getting in the car and driving to Heathrow yeah, just to pick far. it up. I'm quite near it later on this afternoon. Actually, I could nip in and. <laughs> 
So anyway, that's uh, that's Rogue One, a Star Wars story. I don't like that title. Just call it Star Wars Rogue One, please. That that, that just make it perfect. Uh, right, Mark. Competitions. Uh, we have one for all members, and it's a copy of Labyrinth on Blu-ray, and that one closes on the 9th of May, two thousand and sixteen. Of course. Okay. And any any previous? No, there won't be any previous. No. No. We had that last week, so we'll have to wait to the 9th of May. Yes. Okay, let's go into hardware news and um, lots of things happening this week. Um, we even got an event this afternoon, which uh, at the time of recording, sadly, we're not going to be able to tell you about until um, the next podcast. But anyway, there was lots happening this week, and the main event was LG announcing their OLED lineup for 2016. Now, we knew which models were coming uh, from CES, although what we didn't know was the pricing and what kind of features they were going to have up and down the range. But now we know, Steve. We do. We did get a, a look at CES at a couple of the. We got a look at the G6 and the E6. Um, and at this event, I got a chance to see the G6 again and also the C6. So haven't as yet actually seen the B6, which is the kind of, although they don't like just to use these words, entry-level OLED TV for this year. Um, that's a flat screen, uh, no 3D, B6. Um, yeah, and that's going to be 2999 for the 55-inch version and 4499 for the 65-inch version. Interestingly, the C6 and B6 are priced the same. Uh, now, the C6 is the curved model I did see on uh, this week, and um, that does include 3D but they're the same price. So it would suggest that the um, LG are thinking uh, uh, there's going to be a premium or a, a more interest in the flat version than the curved versions that are adding a little bit of a premium to it because one does have 3D and one doesn't. Other than that, though, they are identical in terms of their performance uh, and a similar looking design as well. As far as I can tell from the pictures, as I haven't actually seen the B6 in the flesh yet. They also had the G6 and the E6. So the G6 is the flagship model. This has the big sound base that can actually be moved if you want to wall mount it. Uh, again, flat screen, it's got 3D. Uh, all these TVs are uh, premium UHD and they also have Dolby Vision, HDR10 support as well, of course. Uh, and that's going to be in a 65-inch model, which will set you back 5999 roughly, and also a 77-inch model, which will set you back a trouser wetting £24,999. And then there's the kind of, I think, possibly the sweet spot for, for a lot of AV enthusiasts, which is going to be the E6. The E6 also comes in 55 and 65-inch screen sizes. It basically has the same um, software and uh, what they call system-on-chip um, SOC that LG are referring to, the two models, the E6 and G6. I think they're pretty much going to be the same in terms of performance. has a sound bar rather than a big sound base, but both of them use the same uh, flat screen on a, where the panel is on a, on a glass backing, which looks very nice. Uh, and that comes in, uh, again, 55, 65 screen sizes. So it's going to be 3499 for the 55 inch and 4999 for the 65 inch. So the big question becomes, do you go for the B? If you're looking for a flat screen OLED this year, do you go B6 or E6? And I guess the question then is whether you think um, the E6 is worth the extra 500 quid for 3D, if that's important to you, and the built-in soundbar, and possibly a tiny incremental imp performance in, in uh, improvement in performance, because they were suggesting that the G6 and E6 might be slightly better because of the slightly different system on chip that they're using, partly due to the fact they have these built-in soundbars and other features. So... Um, there might be a slightly better improvement. They were talking about 99% uh, of DCI for the 6G6 and about 96% for the uh, B6C6. So it depends on whether you think you're going to notice a difference or not um, and whether the £500 would rather be spent on maybe an Ultra HD Blu-ray player. 
They did um, some demonstrations. So they had two G6s next to each other and two C6s. And that was great because I think it's the first time I've been to a demo of HDR or, or TV showing HDR and a TV showing SDR where they were actually the same television set up correctly. Um, and we watched uh, a clip from, it was a trailer basically for Mozart in the Jungle, which is available on Amazon Prime for in HDR. And uh, no question that there were, there were, I preferred the HDR version. There was you know, shots where you could see windows outside the windows. There was detail just wasn't visible in the SDR version. More detail in the darks and in the, in the dark parts and shadows. I thought it was a superior viewing experience. But it was good to finally see a comparison with the same TV. So then it was like for like. I thought that was good. They also had the C6 set up. One showing a Blu-ray of Pan and the other one showing um, Dolby Vision encoded scenes from, the, from, from Pan. So the same scene. Uh, in Blu-ray and the same scene in Dolby Vision. I think it would have been a fairer comparison to have done the Ultra HD Blu-ray that's available already against Dolby Vision. But anyway, clearly the Dolby Vision was superior. Uh, it was, you know, the much wider color space, uh, far more detail in bright parts of the image and that clouds and this kind of stuff. Um, it was a very vibrant, dynamic image and I, and I really liked it. So I thought it looked uh, vastly superior to the Blu-ray, which just looked washed out and insipid in comparison when the colors yeah, were you, you would have thought UHD with HDR10 against the the Dolby Vision is more of, of a fair comparison to see what Dolby Vision does above yeah. the HDR10. Absolutely. Because, I mean, to me, that seems like a fair comparison because you're thinking about it, you know, is it, with HDR10 against Dolby Vision, yes, there are differences in terms of the way that they're encoding some of their content Dolby R, but, you know, will you really see a difference on a TV, particularly when you consider the TV itself, at best, according to LG, could deliver maybe up to 800 nits very small peak brightnesses, very spe small pe specular highlights in the image. Um, so you can think, well, are you going to notice difference? I mean, obviously, the, the, gam the colour gamut is the same for both content. So you know, that would be an interesting comparison. Now, interestingly, Dolby did give us some what they've called Dolby Vision test kits, uh, which included a USB with those scenes from Pan. Mine just arrived this morning. It looks really nice in that little tin. <laughs> yeah, it's quite cool, isn't it? Yeah. No expense has been spared, uh, to quote John Hammond. Um, um, USB stick with those scenes from Pan encoded in Dolby Vision. Now, I've actually just ordered Pan on Ultra HD Blu-ray, so I will do uh, a direct comparison of well, the they... HDR10 Ultra, Ultra HD Blu-ray against the Dolby Vision encoded stuff, so we'll see. But obviously, the, the elephant in the room, Stephen, the obvious question here is, there's a UHD version of Pan available now. It's HDR10. It's not Dolby Vision. Mm, yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because that's a Warner's title that was supposed to be originally going to be... Um, uh, Dolby Vision, and they were apparently um, these were the the, the encodes were done or the, the transfers and masters were done by Dolby, so they were done at four thousand nits. In, originally intended to be um, released as Ultra HD Blu-rays with Dolby Vision, and they are available, I believe, on certain streaming services in the US at the moment. So I think it's is it uh, Hulu, um, where you can watch the Dolby Vision version of Pan, for example, uh, on uh, you know, streaming. Obviously, much lower bit rate, twenty. 20, 30 bit uh, megabits a second against 100, but that is available. But for some reason, the early, the initial uh, Ultra HD Blu-rays from Warner Brothers and from Sony, both of whom originally said they were going to support Dolby Vision, don't have Dolby Vision. Obviously, there's also no Dolby Vision supporting Blu-ray players yet. Dolby did say that they expect to see Dolby Vision Blu-ray players arriving later in the year, which is kind of what we suspected because I think we heard at CES the chipset wouldn't be available to the summer anyway. And they did say that there would be um, Ultra HD Blu-rays with Dolby Vision released at some point in the future um, when I don't know so at the moment you've got in the UK at least LG TVs that will support Dolby Vision but no actual way of watching it uh, and I guess a lot of people do ask you know what's the point of Dolby Vision on a, on a TV um, like, like an OLED where it's you know 
540 nits. I think uh, I think that's the red heron. I think the red heron is the yeah. nit, the nit level. Ignore that for this time. For for this moment in time, I think you ignore the nit value. Um, the main thing I think with Dolby Vision is the technology there for mapping the content to yeah. the display. I think that is the important thing to take away from Dolby Vision, not the nit value that stuff's mastered at, at this moment in time, because the maximum they can go to anyway at the minute is 4,000 nits, and Dolby Vision is supposed to be 10,000 nit system eventually, um, and 12-bit. But ignore the 12-bit part as well, because that's, that's not necessarily... Um, going to be important either because it's the way that the content is going to be mapped to the displays that's the clever bit yeah absolutely i mean there is there is a degree of future proofing built in as you said phil 12 bit rec 2020 full color space and 10,000 nits but that's just you know tomorrowland stuff currently right now what i like about dolby vision and this goes back to the comments that spectracal made on the previous podcast is that the good thing about Dolby Vision is an end-to-end solution. So they control everything from the mastering and the monitor that is mastered on, all the metadata, both static and dynamic, and then delivery all the way through to display. It knows exactly what the display, what they have in SpectraCal, um, in CalMan, the, the calibration software, is what they call golden reference um, information about that TV. So if you, if you, for example, you've got one of the LG OLEDs, it will know exactly what that TV is capable of. And it can then be, you know, you can do the calibration on the TV and then, Dolby Vision can map the content from the original master on, on the monitor to the uh, to the TV directly in the best possible way. And I do like that because, as they mentioned last week in, in the podcast and the guys at Spectracal, the big problem with HDR10 is it's open source and everyone's doing their own thing. At least with Dolby, it's a, it's, it's a closed end-to-end system, so you know exactly what you're going to be getting at the end of it. And I do like that aspect of it. But obviously, you know, there are other things that maybe don't answer probably with the manufacturers, particularly licensing fees, I suspect. Yeah, well, this is the big thing. I mean, you just have to look at the marketplace and only LG in the UK. We're not talking about Vizio, which is, is obviously available in the US, but in the UK, there is only LG who are supporting Dolby Vision. And like you say, the two players that are out at the minute, it may be because of chipsets and so on, but even so, they're not Dolby Vision ready. None of the other UHD TVs coming out this year have Dolby Vision on them. So you have to ask the question, why are the industry standing off and, and not going with Dolby Vision? Money. That has to Life. be it. It has, to, it has to be the licensing, and it has to be the fact that perhaps you know not everybody agrees with with the Dolby, and maybe they want to go their own way and not have to yeah. pay licensing and so on. Or give up Which, the control as well. It's, it's well, the control too. Definitely, the licensing fee might be an issue, but there's also you give up an awful lot of control here. Basically, you're just giving up. As far as high dynamic range goes on your TVs. It's completely the responsibility of Dolby Vision. You're completely at the mercy of a third party. And obviously, given the experiences some of them have had with, say, Android, for example, maybe they're reticent to do that in case, you know, because then you, you really don't have any control of your own over, over the HDR performance of your television. Of course, HDR10 is, uh, there are going to be some spec changes coming up. And mm-hmm. some of the technology is this remapping technology. Um, it's coming from another party, not Dolby Vision, but that could very well end up within HDR10. Whether the TVs available now that do HDR10 could be updated is a bit of a unknown. And it's unknown when this new HDR10 standard is going to come in, but it is there and it does yeah. exist. And I'm sure it was Technicolor's side of things that they're now open sourcing that. So Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there will be um, there will be things like dynamic uh, metadata in HDR10. All, what they need to do, if they don't want to use Dolby Vision, the guy, the other manufacturer need to sit down 
and just agree a set of standards that they can all abide to because uh, no one wants everyone just doing their own thing because it ends up with nothing but confusion for everybody. But then obviously um, the argument is, well, just go with Dolby Vision because it's a, it's a solution, all-in-one solution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly the easiest solution. I guess that's what LG thought. Definitely Wild West, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, now, uh, as far as the LG TVs go, aside from the Dolby Vision aspect, of course, they also support HDR10. Uh, and I've got to say that uh, looking at the, the TVs in terms of their performance, um, L LG were very keen to emphasize that they've been making improvements this year on the previous generation. So they put up a, a 5%, a 5RE grey full field pattern um, to show that there was none of the uh, dark edges or the vignetting that we've seen on previous um, generations, although I have to say that was significantly reduced anyway on the previous, uh, was it the EF950? So that was a good good thing. They also were showing with um, uh, with a grace, with a, with um, the 24 down to zero flashing video levels. Um, you can see 24 and you could just see 17. So you had a bit more shadow detail, a bit more detail just above black, which again has been something that um, OLED struggled with in the past. So they seem to have improved that. And I've got to say, you know, looking at the, the uh, G6, very, very impressive looking television. I mean, you know, we've, aside from the the, the benefits of, um, of OLED that we all know about, so things like, you know, the incredible black levels, of course, the wider viewing angles, the great colours. They've also got to remember that um, when it comes to things like HDR and specular highlights, because it's uh, self-emitting, you can go, you can get very bright, very tiny areas of the screen, which you couldn't do with an LCD LED TV, where even with um, like a 500 um, LEDs at the back, you're still limited to how small you can actually go and can still control it. Whereas, of course, in terms of OLED, you can go down to a single pixel. So that, again, lends itself to, to HDR in ways. So people might be thinking, you know, overall brightness, etc. That's not really the point. The majority of the brightness of an HDR signal is going to be sitting around 200 to 400, maybe, at tops. It's the little peak brightnesses that are important for terms of giving that, that kind of dynamic impact. And OLED is perfectly positioned to deliver that in a way that LCD LED can't really do because of the, you know, because of nature technology. So that's something that was impressive. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've got to say, I'm very excited about this uh, new range of OLEDs from LG. I think they're really pushing the boat out in terms of um, performance. I think the pricing is realistic and competitive given what they're, you know, given what's in these TVs and what they can do. I think that the pricing seems fair to me. Um, and they've been, they, they said themselves, they've really been pushing OLED because I think one of the big things they've got to deal with is not amongst the enthusiasts who obviously understand and know what OLED is. It's amongst the general consumer who has no idea that it's a new technology. And they've been, they, they think they said they spent 10 million over the last, during the fourth quarter alone, in promoting the technology. It's obviously had that, that big Super Bowl advert that Woody Scott directed, that kind of thing. Really pushing it. And it seems as though that, that in terms of sales, it's paying off for them because they were saying that they were the number one spot for TVs priced over one and a half thousand pounds. Um, so they're sort of attempt to position themselves as obviously the dominant provider of OLED and also a premium brand. I think the, the big gamble they took over the last few years has been in to pay off. Okay. And I guess the interesting thing is that come Ether time, which is not that far away, really, if you think about it, oh. <laughs> um, we're likely to see two more mm. uh, OLEDs from different manufacturers. But we know the Philips is coming. Yeah. And, I th and I think... <laughs> I think uh, if you were a betting man, you'd put money on Panasonic at least having something as well. Yes, definitely. Um, and that would be good. I mean, everyone likes a bit of competition. Obviously, they're going to source their panels from LG Display, but uh, but in terms of the performance and, and the features, it would be interesting to have some some alternatives and things to compare LG to. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. 
this yeah. year. Tell the cat to shut up. Yeah, I was just going to tell the cat to <laughs> shut up. Obviously agrees with you. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I don't think it's that restrictive, all that restrictive, the panels only coming from LG. Because if you look at the LED, LCD market, a lot of the panels from all the different manufacturers come from, you know, two or three sources. So I'm not sure it's all that restrictive. I've got a lot of noise in the background now. <laughs> She's lying down now, so hopefully she'll be quiet. She just said, what she was doing was announcing her return from outside. All right, okay. She's got a present for you. Yeah. No, probably. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, when I had cats, you know, that, that was back in the days where TVs were quite boxy and they used to sit on top of the TVs. What do they do nowadays with flat panels? They wander around behind them. I can't, I can't say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to upset the manufacturers. <laughs> One of mine is quite interested in televisions, and uh, yeah, she has to be restrained at times. When the sport on, if there's a ball popping about, that the uh, yeah, diving at the screen. They have to have bloody good balance if they want to walk along the top of the really ultra thin ones now. Yeah. Right, so I guess this is this could be a new test that we could introduce, isn't it? What, the cat, cat at the telly. <laughs> <laughs> How cat proof is the is the screen from the claws? And I guess now you've got a Panasonic model with Alcantara in the back. Oh dear, yeah. Oh, a moth eye filter on the front. You wouldn't want that getting scratched, would you? And they like moths as well, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's now a plane crashing somewhere in the background. That was a plane flying overhead, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so wrapping oh, up on this. Peace and quiet of the countryside, eh, boys? <laughs> yeah. Peace and quiet for the podcast. Yeah, this is what we get recording in the morning time now. Uh, anyway. Uh, that is the algae launch and of course the Dolby Vision side of things so let's move things on slightly and let's go back to 1080 HD and Sony have announced a new entry level SXRD projector Mark tell us all about it so uh, it's a replacement for the outgoing HW40ES and the new model is the VPL HW45ES it comes in the same chassis as the older model um, but it boasts a claimed 6,000 hours of lamp life uh, and increased lumens to 1,800. I think the, the old model was 1,700. Uh, as, I say, it's, as you said, it's a uh, full HD model. Uh, it's got built-in uh, an RF 3D transmitter. So it's while TV manufacturers are dumping 3D, projectors are still going strong. Um, and I don't really know what else to say about it, to be quite honest. It's, it, it, it's, got, it's got motion flow and reality creation. Um, yeah, it, it looks like I don't know the price yet, but it looks like a another solid. Uh, I think I, I would take a guess at about two grand. Yeah, it's not going to be much different from the forty, grand. is it? To be... um, because the one that I've just reviewed, the HW sixty five, um, and the review will be going up soon. Um, it's kind of redundant now that this, they've just announced this model because uh, I read the press release the other day as I, as I'm putting this review together. I'm thinking, oh well, that makes uh, this model pretty redundant then because it's almost identical in terms of specs yet it's 800 quid cheaper yeah i was going to ask is there any difference in specs i mean so is this just basically a, a slightly cheaper 65 effectively? Um, yeah that's that's basically it yeah um, looking looking at the spec sheet i mean no, we won't know till we get one in for review and i have uh i have asked for one so we should be getting that in a couple of months when it's when it's uh, released and there's production models because we won't look at a pre-production but um uh, yeah, it, it kind of looks the same as the 65. So I'm putting this review together at the minute. I'm thinking, well, <laughs> this kind of makes makes it a little bit redundant, really, um, if you're going to get very, very similar um, performance levels. Uh, and you got to say, at that price, I think if you were waiting on 4K, I would still wait in terms of projectors. Certainly in terms of HDR, I think you really do need to be waiting a, a little while before upgrading for HDR when it comes to projectors because 
it's just not going to at this moment in time, it's just not going to give the same performance even a JVC with its you know inherently great dynamic range it still struggles with HDR material to, to really you know give give you that experience and you're not going to get the experience that you get with a flat panel just no way so yeah, um, yeah. I think in terms of 1080 HD projection I think it's got quite a bit of life in it yet absolutely and the HW40 was a stonking value for money so if this is in a basically a cheaper version of the 65 then uh, it could be really really good value along with really great performance yeah i mean the the, the thing here is that you think well yeah great they've done this with a 45 but it kind of makes the 65 redundant now and the 65 is still a very relevant model mm. um like say we've just reviewed it we've just had it in for review so it still is a really relevant model to have so um yeah it, it seems a little bit strange from that point of view but in terms of 1080 projection there's still lots of big plus points i think if you go a little bit further up the scale you start hitting the jvc x 5000 which does um e-shift 4 which um is really good excellent mm, and and obviously it, it will accept uh, 4k blu-ray it will accept 4k material it's hdcp and so on so you're still having to hit the four grand price mark before you start getting that that kind of performance so anything below that i think you know 1080p wise it's still very relevant and the performance level i mean the th- the one thing i will say about the hw65 is it's a cracking projector black levels not jvc standard and you know not that great for an sxrd projector but you've got to remember that they're hitting a price point I would say black levels are, are acceptable. Just when you get to the really bottom end, you're losing shadow detail. But color-wise, really good. Really impressive color-wise. The contrast levels, okay. Not amazing, but okay. But actually watching on, on a big screen, and that's that's where the, the big advantage is of a projector. It gives a really, really nice cinematic image. And for the money that you're spending on the 65, or even on the 40 and 45, when it comes to the market, it seems really reasonable for the money. I mean, if you're looking just for where the Euros coming up and the Olympics coming up in the summer and we're currently working, well, I'm saying we, I am currently working on looking at basically cheap projectors at the minute and seeing what you actually get for your money these days where you just buy something that you're going to use maybe for the Euros and, and the Olympics big screen. Maybe you're going to have a garden party or a street party or something. You project it up against the side of the house or whatever or um, you, you're going to have a... A party in the house and you just want to shoot something towards a white a white wall instead of getting a screen and so on there's a a, a really nice range of projectors now that are hd um and looking at what you can get money wise and i've just reviewed one which is on the site now the w1110 dlp from benq and for 650 quid and in fact you can get for a lot less than that if you shop around online if you're using it for big screen viewing 3d movies and sports and even gaming, because gaming-wise, I think it was 30, 32, 30, was it? 32 or 33 milliseconds. Yeah. It's an ideal all-rounder. Um, the only thing is, black levels are terrible. But then if you're going to use them in the in, in a living room with white walls, white ceiling, a little bit ambient light, um, you raise your black floor anyway. So the blacks then are not that big an issue, to be honest. And the same with the HW65. And I guess the plus point with BenQ is that it's a DLP, so motion is really strong on it. And the 3D is excellent. Uh, really really good uh, on on dlp so if you want something cheap and reliable we'll have a whole lineup of uh, stuff that we're trying at the minute some of them are not great (laughs) and obviously designed for other things because what you tend to find at this price point is they're dual role projectors so 
they'll have a business mode in them or they'll ha they'll have ways of doing presentations and so on because that's again what they'll be used for um the dell that i have in at the minute a perfect example of that it does have a movie mode on it it looks okay it's a dlp projector lots of rainbow in um so obviously the the color wheel is not uh unlike the the benq where they spend a little bit of time on the color wheel and the color wheel speed and so on um and using rgb rgb color wheels i'm not 100 percent sure what dell's using but a lot, lot more rainbows there um, but anyway that's that's coming up with the euros and the olympics coming up this summer we're looking at big screen for little money and see what kind of value you get but if you're looking for a movie projector under a thousand pounds i would still say the w2000 from benq although we're getting the w3000 in at some point so that might be a bit better well we mentioned 3d that was another thing with the hw65 that is a strong point and it seems to be a thing with sony's they're either great or they're rubbish yeah. with 3D. Um, HW65, brilliant. Really, really good. Maybe the 45 would be rubbish. Make the 65, you know, justifiable. It's not a price point thing, Mark, because uh, I remember being bitterly disappointed when I reviewed the first VW500. Uh, well, yeah. I, I, I just did the 520 and it wasn't great. Yeah. It wasn't great. So um, it seems to be a bit of a... And, it, and apparently it can also vary within the same model number, you know, from unit to unit. So it's a bit of a bit of a lottery sometimes with Yeah, and it doesn't matter what you, what you do with the, uh, the controls and stuff as well. It seems really odd. Anyway, so that's the displays out of the way. Uh, let's move on to Sky. Um, another news story, Mark. Yeah, it's just a quick one. This It's just um, the expansion of the Sky Go service. So it's got three more channels uh, added, which is e-entertainment, sci-fi, which has some good stuff on it, and the uh, universal. I'm not sure what the Universal Channel has on it there, but um, it's always good to see uh, expansion. I think Sky Go now covers up to 60 channels. I think that's right. For, so Sky Go is uh, an app that's available through your mobile, your tablet, or your PC, and it allows you to view uh, live and on-demand programming from the channels you're subscribed to, and it comes part of your, uh, your Sky package at no extra cost, I believe. So it's, it's always good to see the expansion of that. I don't have Sky, I've got Virgin. Um, they offer a similar thing. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's really handy. It's also good for, it's a good way of having multi-room in, in a way. You can um, you can not, you can forego the multi-room subscription and, and watch on another device in another room, which is always handy. Mark, if, if you wanted to be naughty, could you, and somebody in your family had Sky Go and, and you didn't have Sky, is, is there any uh, way of stopping you actually logging into it? Even though you're on a different IP and so on. No, no, you can you can you can log in from from anywhere. So I think you get, I think the standard Sky Go, you get two concurrent logins, um, which you can share with family, I believe. Uh, and in fact, I know <laughs> my brother-in-law did lend me a Sky Go um, subscription a while back. Um, yeah, and we we happily watched from from different houses. If you pay a bit extra, you can have up to four concurrent logins, I believe, with Sky Go. Cats just opened the door. Thank you. God, I can't wait for these holidays to be over. Jesus, they, they, our podcasts are ruled by cats. I was just checking out um, Sky earlier on, actually, funnily enough, and they've got some uh, cracking deals on at the minute, starting at uh, twenty-five, sorry, twenty pounds a month for the basic Sky Plus, and forty-four for Sky Q, and that will get you a free thirty-two-inch LG TV, or a Samsung Galaxy Tab E, or a hundred pounds reward from I think it was Tesco, Amazon, or a prepaid Mastercard. So there's some some good stuff out there at the minute. So it could get you that. It's a competition, right? No, no, no. Oh, no. For, every, for every new subscriber, that that's that's the offer. Get one of those. One of those, yeah. I think you have to yeah. sign up for um, 18 months rather than 12 months. Um, that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, 
Yes. If you're looking for a new TV and and we're happening, is that with us complimenting a Murdoch product? Oh, I'll tell you what, every man's got his price, and mine might be that. <laughs> that might be a free TV. A free TV, and, and it's all forgiven. It's all forgotten and forgiven. That's the way of the world. Okay. Yeah, so if you think if you think if you if you're searching out a new TV deal, and you, you're looking for uh, for a new TV, then that's that could be the way to go. So that wraps up hardware for this week, and we'll be back in a sec with movies. So, Steve, uh, we don't have any cinema review uh, this week, but what's coming up at the cinema on Friday? This Friday, the big release is The Jungle Book, which is a live action, or semi-live action, because obviously a lot of the animals are going to be CG, but a live action remake by Disney of their famous 1967 uh, animated film, The Jungle Book, based upon the um, the story by Rudyard Kipling. Um, Got to say, Jungle Book, the original Jungle Book, is one of my favourite, um, if, not, if not my favourite, Disney animated film. I think it's great fun. It's got a fantastic voice cast and definitely the best songs uh, of any uh, Disney movie, Disney animated film. So I wasn't convinced by, oh, I don't know if I want them to remake Jungle Book. But they've been going through a process of remaking a lot of their animated films into live action films, starting with um, Alice in Wonderland, which was a big hit for them. And they've more recently done Cinderella, for example. And now they're doing The Jungle Book. And although I'm reticent because I love the original. Um, from what I've seen, this does look amazing. It's directed by John Favreau. As I say, it's predominantly, um, obviously it's live action, but they um, have CG, CG animals. Um, and the voice cast they've assembled is really impressive. So you've got um, Bill Murray doing Baloo the Bear. Um, there's Ben Kingsley as Bagheera. Uh, Idris Elba is playing uh, Shere Khan. Although he'd have to go some way to top um, George Saunders. I think he was amazing in the original. And Scarlett Johansson is playing uh, the snake car. Uh, and Christopher Walken is doing um, King Louis, the um, the uh, jazz, jazzy ape in, in the original, um, which will be interesting. So it's got an interesting cast of uh, voice actors, as well as um, it's, it's shot, um, apparently, um, I believe this was told to me by IMAX, that um, as a test, Disney actually did finish this film. Uh, using Rec 2020 color space, which would be interesting. It might well be something that comes into play a few years down the line. But um, yeah, it looks it looks technically impressive, uh, and I probably will go and see it out of curiosity more than anything else. Although, as I say, I'm actually personally a big fan of the original, and I'm not entirely convinced that it needs to be remade. But uh, with that kind of cast of voices and the technology involved, I think it would be an interesting um, and enjoyable uh, movie. Well, At least it looks very different, doesn't it? I mean. Yeah, in, well, in terms of the look, it's not just a straight the straight animation as you say. It's a live action, and the clips I've seen look fantastic. So uh, it's not like you know uh, Terminator or something where it's just that really didn't need to be remade, or RoboCop or something where the look hasn't really improved that much or anything. But it's a dramatically different look, so that's quite enticing to me. It, interesting though, you picked up on it, Steve. The jazz soundtrack of the original. I mean, it it was made around about that that era when jazz was was big and was experimental and so on. And I think that's why the soundtrack and the songs really stand out in that in the original. Um is because they have that back and they have that that um energy of the time uh, yeah. that it was made. And and the songs really do stick. I mean I can I can still sing you all the songs from that film. Yeah, can you think of any other Disney film animated film where you know so many of the songs? I mean there's uh, I wanna be a man uh, Bare Necessities, Trust in Me. There's loads of great songs in it. Yeah. Um, we're really ones you can sing along to quite happily. Uh, I remember going to see uh, The Jungle Book on a reissue 
in the late 80s. Me and a mate went along because we love it. And we were the only people over the age of 10 <laughs> type <laughs> cinema, <laughs> which is a bit worrying. <laughs> but um, And also it was back in the days where you could smoke uh, on the sort of right-hand side of the cinema. So, so my mate was sitting there puffing away on his cigarette on the right-hand side. And all these other kids were on the left-hand side. And I felt a bit guilty about that. But, um, but a great film. Uh, so yeah, like Mark says... Um, it looks amazing, and I've spent I've spent a long time making this, and I think it's pushing the boundaries in terms of technology, which is interesting as well. Bizarrely, uh, Warner Brothers are making a, a Jungle Book film as well, um, called I think Jungle Book Origins, and I'm thinking we really have messed up. Why they're bothering? I think it's being directed by Andy Serkis as well, who's obviously working with other actors on motion capture and all this sort of stuff. But they've pushed a release back um, another year, presumably to avoid. Disney, and as you've, by then everyone have forgotten about the previous Jungle Book, but I, I, I don't know. I never understand why studios have a habit of, two studios have a habit of making two films about the same subject at the same time. Yeah. Because I'm one d- of them's going to suffer, aren't they? Yeah. Or they both end up suffering. It, it's funny how that happens. It, it, it's, you get two films coming along with the same sort of subject matter at the same time. So you had um, Armageddon and uh, what was the other one? Where, Deep um, Impact. Deep Impact. And then you had, um, recently we've had... White House down in London, um, not London, Olympus, sorry, um, Olympus, Olympus has fallen. fallen. Yeah, so yeah, you did, yeah, you get now and again when you get two coming along that are really quite similar in terms of story and plotting and so on. You yeah. got you got to think people, you know, they go around the studios pitching these things and they get turned down and then they, they get picked up by another studio and then you can see that the studio that turned them down is suddenly thinking, oh well, I think we better come up with something similar. Yeah, that's <laughs> basically what happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's very weird. Uh, um, in fact, in the case of Armageddon and Deep Impact, I've actually read because there was a third. There was going to be a third um, asteroid hitting the Earth film called Bright Angel Falling, written by James Cameron. Um, and I've read Cameron's script for that, and it's quite clear that bits of that script were used in the other two films. In fact, a large part of Armageddon appears to have been pulled from from that script. So I don't know whether um, they actually did buy it. it. Eventually, Disney bought it for um, Armageddon, but there's there's sections of the the camera and screenplay that are used. There's a daughter, father-daughter relationship, the bit about slingshotting around the moon, the shuttles, um, trying to put the bomb on the asteroid. That's all straight out of this Cameron script. So I'm guessing that that might have been uh, used in part for Armageddon, which I absolutely love, by the way. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's really stupid, but um, but it's great fun. It's a damn sight more fun than Deep Impact, which is plainly boring. Okay, so um, that's Jungle Book. It comes out on Friday. Coming out today on Blu-ray, if you're listening on Monday. Uh, Mr. Robot, Bride of Reanimator, Trapped, and Three Days of the Condor. Mr. Robot, I'm up to uh, episode six. So I'm, I'm kind of at the... It's taken me a while. Because <laughs> I think if you're a re- regular listener to the podcast, you remember that. I probably discussed episode one back in March last year. <laughs> It's one every two months you watch it. <laughs> well, I didn't. No, I, I just I had time for the first time in a long time. I had some time the other the other night, and I just thought, right, what am I going to do? Watch a film, or actually, I could probably get through another four episodes of this in the same time as watching a watching a couple of films. So I just cracked on and got got to about episode six, and I'm at the the season down point. You know, the the low point before it starts building up again. Um, but I've got to say, it's kind of going the way I thought it was going to go but it, there's a few twists starting to starting to appear now and the screws starting to get turned and the the episode that I've just watched had a really strange dream sequence so now you're really confused as to what's what's going on so yeah 
I, I think if I get time over this weekend, I'll uh, I'll crack on and get get the rest because there's only ten episodes, so I think I can crack on and get the rest of it done. And it, this on Blu-ray is going to be absolutely fantastic because streaming-wise, the picture quality is really good, and the soundtrack, even though it's Dolby Digital Plus um, through Amazon, uh, really really nice sound design, really nice sound design. So it's going to really uh, really be good on Blu-ray, I think. Mm, yeah. Uh, right, so Bride of Reanimator. Um, don't know about that one, Steve. Never seen it. I have seen Bride of Reanimator as along with the original Reanimator. Um, it's a sort of mid eighties um, gory horror film, uh, but with a sense of humour. Uh, I don't actually think Bride's as good as the original, um, the Reanimator, the first film, which is really quite funny and good fun. Um, Bride of Reanimator, I found to be a bit more of the samey. Um, but if you're a fan of sort of you know that mid eighties horror genre then um then definitely one for you uh trapped is a uh one of those nordic noir series about uh, um, a small town in iceland who you know the, w- the winter kicks in they're basically stuck in a town blocked in by a, a massive storm w- along with a killer and they find a body at the beginning and there's so they're trapped with a killer and trapped by the elements and uh, apparently uh simon who reviewed it said it's absolutely superb really nail-biting really exciting um, and so if you're into Nordic Noir, worth checking out. And finally, Three Days of the Condor. And apparently this is the first um, release of this film on um, in the UK on, on you know, on Blu-ray or DVD. I think maybe even home video at all since it came out in 1973. Um, and that's a shame because Three Days of the Condor is a fantastic film. It's Robert Redford. He plays a CI analyst and um, everyone else in his um the place he works gets killed by a hit squad and he has to go on the run. Uh, and it's a really exciting film. It's really, really good and very influential. Definitely influenced um, Captain America Winter Soldier. Very influential on Enemy of the State as well, if you've seen that, the Tony Scott film with um, uh, with Gene Hatman and um, Will Smith. Uh, this is a really good film, um, directed by Sidney Pollock. And so if you haven't seen Three Years of the Condor, I would highly, highly recommend it. Uh, and of course all of these bar Mr Robot are up on the site now uh, so go and click on reviews and then click on movies and you'll find them all so go and have a read if you're interested in those ones and Mr Robot I would, I'd say pick it up if you haven't, haven't watched it on Amazon it's well worth it I think on Blu-ray because like I say image and sound wise really really impressive okay when films have multiple versions which one do you prefer and why explain this Steve well what reason I was thinking about this was because a few weeks ago we were talking about um, Apocalypse Now and Ed was saying he preferred the Redux version of Apocalypse Now, the longer cut that was released uh, more recently, whereas I prefer the original theatrical release. And I was I had me thinking there's quite a few films now where you've had longer versions or director's cuts or different versions of films released. Uh, and often there's a lot of debate about which one they prefer. So I was thinking, you know, if you've got any films that you prefer, you know, where there's multiple versions and, you know, for example, Blade Runner, for example, um, there's uh, five different versions of Blade Runner. Um, but I do prefer the final cut, basically, because it's the one where um, Ridley Scott has basically fixed all the problems and, and the mistakes and they've removed the uh, voiceover and uh, the happy ending. And it's, I think it works as, as, as the film he intended to make originally, but wasn't able to. So that would be my preferred version. Whereas his different cut of Alien, because um, on the Alien Blu-ray, there's two versions of the original theatrical cut and a cut he did, I think, in the early 2002 or something like that, I think it was. Um, that cut, he um, tightens up the beginning a bit and he adds in the, um, the sequence where she finds Dallas in Cocoon towards the end. And the reason he didn't have that in the original cut was because it broke the flow of the end, the final 20 minutes of the film. And he was absolutely right. It does. It stops the film dead. It isn't necessary. You don't need it. You can just assume that Dallas is dead. 
Um, there's no reason for that sequence at all, other than the putting it in, you know, for a director's cut or a different version for the re- Blu-ray release. Unfortunately, I think it does break up. But also, by shortening the beginning of the film, you lose that build-up of tension. Um, I, I think, you know, modern audiences don't seem to have any patience anymore, but I, bef- I actually think that Ridley Scott got it right with the original cut of um, Alien, uh, in the same way that I also think that um, Francis Coppola got it right with the original cut of... Uh, of Apocalypse. Now, I know that Ed thinks that you, you know that the French plantation sequence really adds to the flow of the film and the reason behind it. And he's probably right about that. The bit I don't like is they, they put in a bit where the crew of the boat steal Colonel Kilgore's surfboard, which is really out of character. And it also means that the last scene with Kilgore is him in a helicopter chasing after them, going, give me my, my surfboard back, as opposed to the actual theatrical cut, where his last line of dialogue is, someday this war is going to end after the napalm speech. And that just works much better for me. So that would be why I prefer those versions. And then, of course, you've got Kingdom of Heaven, which oh, if, yeah, massive if, difference. if you watch the theatrical version, it's not very good. Watch the director's cut, and it's a completely different film altogether and, and flows better and um, makes far more sense. It's actually a really, really good film, the director's cut. Definitely. I mean, in fact, you know, I don't think you can... I, I did see it at the cinema and came out thinking, mm. Yeah, there's a lot of um, extended cuts I think work better. Um, I'd have to say Heaven's Gate, definitely the longer cut works better in that film. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Um, you need to see the full uh, five-hour version to really get the best from that film, in my opinion, though some <laughs> may disagree. <laughs> five hours, is it? Really five hours? There's a, I've got a cut. There's a, a, a cut that came out, I think it was last year or the year before, where they, yeah, it's it's clocking it's good, at least four and a half hours long, <laughs> maybe maybe near a five. I need to book a week after, I said. Yeah. Remember when um, Coppola recut Godfather Part 1 and 2 into a chronological order for a TV screening? Oh, yeah. Which was, um, and added in some extra stuff that, you know, had not been used in the actual films. And that really didn't work for me at all because one of the great things about Godfather Part 2 is the way that it juxtaposes the rise of the father and the fall of the son against one another. So um, you lost that structure. So, yeah, it just became like a basically, you know, a, a, a... um, a gangster soap opera, basically, at that point, rather than something that was genuinely brilliant. But um, yeah, a lot. I mean, there's a real. Ridley really Scott's probably the the worst offender for director's cuts and longer cuts of his films. Some of which work, some of which don't. Com- uh, and Cameron's done it a couple of times. The, the, I prefer the. I think I watched three different versions of Terminator Two: the theatrical cut, the director's cut, and then the extra super long cut with a different ending. And yeah. definitely, um, I think he got it right the first time with the shorter cut. Yeah, totally. Whereas although, Aliens, I definitely prefer the longer cut. Although there is an interesting scene in Terminator 2 where um, they have to reset his chip, yeah, the switch on the chip, and I think that was interesting. And mm. it, I don't think it would have slowed the film down any because there's an in, interesting point there where they could destroy him. Yeah, yeah, that scene was good. And that scene should have been in the film, I think. Um, other bits are just short Yeah, we're, we're, just, we're just trying to smile and that kind of thing. Yeah, you, you were better <laughs> cutting all that out, really. To be honest, but in Aliens, though, I think the longer cuts way, way better because it just builds and builds and builds like a roller coaster. And you get to the top and then you're off for the next hour and a half. Um, and I think that one really does work better as a longer cut. But obviously, you know, he had to cut it for time because, you know, certainly at the, at the time, pre Titanic, for example, the perceived wisdom was, you know, if you were longer than two hours, you were going to lose screenings and lose money. Um, so much so that when Titanic came out, Although it was actually three hours and 15 minutes long, they were referring to it as two hours and 74 minutes. <laughs> trying to disguise the fact that it was quite a long film. <laughs> Dances with Wolves, I think, is better in its longer cut as well. 
yeah, I agree with you on that one. And the other person responsible for all these extended cuts and all the rest is Peter Jackson. But a lot of arguments says his films are long enough without the freaking extended bits. I think in in Lord of the Rings, the extended cuts are superior because you're, he's cramming in so much stuff, and the longer versions breathe more. You, you, it it makes, makes more sense. sense. Yeah, they make Absolutely, more sense. Absolutely, they do. With the Hobbit, though. We got the very op- the opposite um, situation where you're adding things to something that's already over padded and too long. And King um, and King Kong was the same. It was yeah, yeah. That that could have you know it was. I, I know it was his love letter to the original King Kong, but it was just he's try again trying to get too much in there. And even the extended version, it's still it's like you could have cut all this out really. I kind of admire Spielberg for basically, with the one notable exception, leaving his films, you know, doing it, making the film, cutting it, releasing it, and that's it. And he did once tinker, and that's with ET, and I know he's regretted it ever since. So I kind of, I kind of admire him for just saying, you know, that's the version I made, and you know, that's the version I'm happy was with. Not a different version of Close Encounters, I've ever dreamt. Oh, that's true. No, sorry, I completely forgot about Close Encounters. Yeah, I was just, yeah. I was just about to say, there's about that, there's, there's loads of versions of that, <laughs> TV versions yeah, well, and recuts again, and. That, that was partly because uh, he, um, when he was making Close Encounters, he had a very short post-production timescale. He had to get it into, into cinema for Christmas 77 because um, EMI, who were producing it, were in financial trouble at the time. Uh, so so that was he was really pushed it. And he always felt that he, he rushed it and didn't do the film he wanted to do, hence the special edition. And while the special edition had some good bits in it, like the ship in the desert, uh, the ending when he's inside the spaceship, inside the UFO, that was terrible. I think the final version that he's done, uh, he did a, a final version where he combined the best bits from from both films, um, and, and that that version really works well, I think, because it doesn't have the bit inside the mothership, but it does have the things like the ship in the desert, which was a really good scene, um, uh, and also more of the stuff of Roy going nuts basically, and which um, was cut out a lot. Of that was cut out of the special edition so his family leaving him makes no sense it's like they just suddenly leave him whereas obviously in the longer cut with all the stuff where he's basically going bonkers you kind of understand why his wife's legged it um so yeah uh, that was that's a good good example um mark I've got my close friends, which is strange because it's one of my favorite films going back to jaws i see that uh, jaws 2 3 and 4 are coming on blu-ray and 3 is going to be 3d i know i'll probably give 2 and 4 a miss but i'm going to buy 3 definitely i I've don't know I, I, I don't know I, I quite like 2 Two's all right. It, it, it wasn't terrible. Uh, I think I'd pick up three just for 3D, but four, definitely leaving that alone. Michael Caine <laughs> on a plane with a shot. They show the Jaws 3D on TV once, and there's a copy of, there was some anaglyph um, yeah, glasses on the front of the Radio Times or the TV Times. Back in the 1980s happened. 3D boom, um, there was definitely a, a, an attempt to deliver it by, you know, on television using anaglyph, which it was terrible wasn't at it? all. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, 3D's had 30-year cycles since the 20s, so I guess we'll be all going through another 3D boom in, uh, when, 2040? <laughs> if you're still too old to see it. <laughs> <laughs> or dead. <laughs> Thanks for that, Mark. Okay. <laughs> and on that dead bombshell, that's it for the podcast this week. My thanks to Steve Willis. Good show, and now I must continue my search for the helps little lad. And Mark Hodgkinson. A rolling bear gathers no hair. Get with the beat.
Uh, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmarkavforums.com for latest reviews, news and video. And of course, leave us those five stars on iTunes and we'll uh, read your name out. Uh, only if you enjoyed the show though, and it has to be five stars. I'm Phil Hinton, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next Monday. <laughs>